Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with financial therapist Ed Combs on how a person's attachment history can impact their financial decisions. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you again here from Chaddock. So today I am going to be interviewing a person named Ed Combs. I find his work so interesting in that he is looking at how our attachment history impacts our financial well-being and financial decisions. So basically, attachment and money. Uh, His book is called The Healthy Love and Money Way, How the Four Attachment Styles Impact Your Financial Well-Being. And I have to say, this is something I had never really thought very much about. So I'm going to share some information about his background before he hops on to join us for the podcast interview. Again, Ed Combs, he helps couples and clinicians untangle the mess of money and relationships using the art and science of attachment theory and interpersonal neurobiology. He loves applying attachment theory and interpersonal neurobiology to the way that couples relate to each other around money, moving couples from money mayhem to financial intimacy. He has earned his MBA in finance, an MA in counseling, an MS in financial planning. He's also a certified financial planner and a certified financial therapist, which gives him a broad and dynamic and comprehensive view of the ways that couples encounter money over their time together. I have to throw in there again, prior to hearing about Ed's work, I had not heard of the term financial therapy. So that was something else new to me. He's a thought leader and co-developer of the professional practice of financial therapy which trains both mental health and financial planning professionals on the intersection of counseling, psychology, and money. His new book, which I shared earlier, I'll share again, The Healthy Love and Money Way, How the Four Attachment Styles Impact Your Financial Well-Being, shares a roadmap to help couples and clinicians see, heal, and grow through their attachment relationship and money. He also has another book that's going to be coming out. So I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. I very much enjoyed his book and I'm looking forward to sharing this interview about Ed and his work. So stay tuned. He will be coming right up. Hey, Ed, thanks for coming back to continue this discussion about your book, Healthy Love. And Money Way, How the Four Attachment Styles Impact Your Financial Well-Being. So we were talking last week about some of the foundational principles of finances, which I really appreciated you doing because many 
of our listeners are therapists and they will be the first to say like, that's not my forte. Like, I don't know a lot about that. So I really appreciated that. And you gave us, you know, some examples of the main things financial planners think about. Um, You went through six of those. And I wondered if we could talk about some of them today, almost more like in a case study fashion, you know, in terms of how that could come up for somebody. And I know, you know, even just um, in in the book, when you were, were talking about some of these, you know, this idea of estate planning, for example. Right. How does your own history and your attachment security impact thinking about what will happen when I die? And you brought up these examples of, you know, someone saying that's morbid, that's terrible. You know, I, I don't even want to discuss that versus someone who can discuss that in a, a, a really balanced way. Um I found that example really compelling. If you want to walk that out a little bit. Well, and it's, you know, I'm thinking about, I had an even more recent conversation about estate planning. It was kind of an indirect conversation. What is oh, good. Let's hear about in, that. It wasn't in the therapy world, but it, it was like, it's like, oh man, this, this just lights up so many bells. And so I'm going to try to weave this together. Okay, great. Right. So it's a couple, they're, it's second marriage for both of them. They both have kids from their first marriages. And let's say the wife is about early sixties, the husband's late seventies. So they, you know, mismatch and age from second marriage. And as I'm listening to her, to her describe her husband, I'm thinking avoidant, avoidant, avoidant all day long, dismissive, you know, successful professional in his own right had come from some family money, has his own kids they're married there. She's in the house. She's watching him age and getting closer to his own death. And she's starting to think about, well, what happens when he dies and how are the kids going to respond to the house that we're living in? What are their expectations? He hasn't disclosed or told me what the estate plan is yet. I don't know whether I actually get to stay in this house or not. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that relational anxiety Right. That, like, I don't know how to approach or I can't approach or I don't feel certain that I can talk to my partner about what is this? How am I going to be taken care of? But in that process of his dying, I'm going to be you know, the most likely scenario. He's going to die before she will. Right. And yeah. so she needs and she's having this increasing awareness like, well, I don't and I don't have a great working relationship with the adult children. So already there could be some potential antagonism that comes up yes. post-mortem. And so yeah. she's wanting to be able to cut it off the fast, manage some anxiety. And she, the language that she uses, I had to drag him to the estate planning attorney to mm. approach this and to open up and say, what are the plans here? Right. So this folds into issues of financial transparency within couples. Mm-hmm. Or, People have a really hard time sharing vulnerably all the financial information mm-hmm. because they fear being rejected, being taken advantage of, being exploited. Yes. Those are not the features of a secure functioning relationship. Right. But when we have unresolved attachment needs or styles at the end of our life, 
it passes through to the next generation. Yes. And the kids pick up on that relational anxiety and uncertainty. They pick up on the fact that we can't openly talk about the reality of what our finances are and what this means and how the assets are going to be distributed. And so it really becomes a big issue. And I think this is a big part of why people don't go to the state planning attorney. This is not, it's not even their, their fear of death, which is part of it, but it's also just the fear of facing the reality of the way the family is actually structured. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking of these examples. Maybe I've seen in aspects of my own life or observed from afar where with the death of a parent around finances, people like transform into like something you never expected, right? (laughs) Yes. And I liked earlier when you you know, brought forth part of Bowlby's quote from the cradle to the grave, we all need a safe haven and a secure base and money and finances are part of that. They're part, they represent a safe haven and secure base or lack thereof in some way. So it's quite- And they also represent the ability to go out and explore and be expansive. Yes. Yes, that's right. true too. And some have said, and I can't remember who said, money is one of the most perfect objects for projection on. Yes. We can project all of our psychological needs onto money. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I'm thinking about also, and I thought about it a lot with reading the book, it, I, I once heard David Wallen speak. I think I might have mentioned this in an email. And well, more than once heard him speak. And he was talking about attachment styles and money in psychotherapy from the therapist perspective. Mm. And looking at, I'm going to share this example he gave with you and, and I want your thoughts on it. So it's, it's about billing, basically. Okay, so it says a secure state of mind, they're integrated, which we know, relationship um, where there's room for two, me and you, you know, he talks about that a lot. And so money policies can be flexibly enforced, like there can be some leeway, but that's the word he used, flexibly enforced. With a dismissing state of mind, where the person's not integrated, there's room for one, the self, uh-huh. and policies are very rigidly enforced. Like this is, and it's interesting because, you know, you, I'm, I'm in lots of different groups with therapists on Facebook and this, this kind of thing comes up a lot. And some people are like, whoa, I lay down the law and I bill them before they even come through the door. And I don't care if there's a death in the family, they have to pay me, you know? <laughs> and then you've got, then you've got, let's go on to the preoccupied state of mind, right. room for only the other, overly flexible policies that are loosely enforced. So they're like, I don't know if I should charge this much. I don't 
even know if I should charge at all. Like, I don't know what my policy should be. I said, if you, you know, if, if you don't cancel ahead of time, then I'm going to charge you. But yet I feel bad charging them because, you know, A, B or C happened. And then he has um, the unresolved state of mind, oscillation between overly rigid and overly flexible. <laughs> so I, our listeners can't see, but you're smiling and nodding. Some thoughts about that, because this will hit home for a lot of our listeners in their own businesses. Oh, my gosh. This is such a huge topic. And <laughs> oh, don't worry. We have about 15 minutes left. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I've talked about my fantasy to save the world. It might just be to save the therapist from from the relationship with money. It's it's. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a big deal. You know, I mean, when I was in grad school going through and talking about wanting to do this work, it kind of was like this distancing, like, whoa, we don't talk about that here. We don't do that. Right. So that's kind of that avoidant distancing stance yes. towards money. And then the fee setting and what it means and represents and how our, and therapists, I mean, we're just generally so compassionate people. Like, but it's funny to hear you say that, like, there are those rigid therapists that are like, Oh, hell no, I'm charging them. It doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, I feel like if we were to put it at a pie chart, yes. a large percentage of the therapists would be kind of more of that anxious, not wanting to offend anybody. Yes. Right. And maybe underestimating the value of the service and having a hard time then charging a fee. Yes, yes, agreed. Well, and this is right. This is that shadow side of the educational path for a lot of therapists is they don't even get trained to think about, well, what's the market rate for a service? How do I comp my service relative to another service? How do I run a forecasted budget and expenses to be able to determine appropriate salary that would be commiserate with someone with a similar level of graduate education? Right. I can't imagine people even listening right now, like scratching their heads like, hmm, yeah, man, I never thought of that. Or, yeah, I guess I should be thinking of that or <laughs> right. but, because you, but, you suddenly went into financial planner language. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I realized that I was, I was like, OK, be careful, gentle. So if I lost you there, come back. It's all right. What I'm saying is and what we know from the most mature part of ourself is every profession has an incredible strength and a shadow side that leads them to miss certain things. Right. Yes. And that's what this is about is being able to integrate these two worlds together and our fee setting, what we represent, what we think it represents to the client are things that in a good way we're thoughtful about. Yes. But it can be a way in which we chronically don't meet our own needs. Right. And that's where David's quote makes so much sense is it's really about two in this part of the therapeutic relationship. It really is about the two of us, mm -hmm. because what happens is when therapists don't set the right rate or set too low and then compound that with if therapists are not saving for their financial future. Yes. The resentment and burnout goes up even higher. Right. This is professionally known as being tied to the chair. I can't mm -hmm. stop seeing clients at a high rate as I age because I don't have the accumulated money to be able to slow down my pace of work. Mm -hmm. I don't have any hope that I'll be able to stop doing this, even if it is meaningful. Yes. And so that's that 
financial planning side where being able to work with someone that can help you work through the projections, the mathematical projections that give reasonable certainty to where this may end up, right? Right. So you also talk in the book about imposter syndrome. And this is a word that I, that every therapist is going to be familiar with, but it does tie in here to some degree, doesn't it? Yeah, I think in several different ways, the way I'm picking it up, at least right now in my head is that imposter syndrome um, from a crossing social class perspective. Yes. Right. The number of therapists that may come from very modest or moderate means, and now uh, if they're in private practice, and they have this graduate education, the first in their family to have a graduate education, and what does it mean to charge this level of hourly rate? And it feels unfamiliar, and so then I feel uncomfortable. And am I actually worthy of this? And then how does my family feel about me making this money? What does my family say about me? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all things that I see come up when I work with therapists as clients. And so Dr. James Grubman's done some really great work and he uses a cross-cultural lens to look at how people cross social class. And, he, and his book is called Strangers in Paradise, how families integrate wealth across the generations. That's fascinating. And so it, it stops, we don't pathologize the adjustment to being in this new cultural dynamic called the land of wealth or professional income. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as as someone that has come from a, for me personally, a blue collar working class background, now being a highly educated professional, there are different expectations of me that still feel unfamiliar, even, even though I'm educated to perform them. Yes. Right. The way I manage my time is different. I have to manage my time as a blue collar professional. You don't manage your time. Somebody mm-hmm. else tells you how to organize your time for you. Right. So there's all these subtle differences across class. And that's another big part of the therapy piece is outside of just the technical financial planning piece. It's how do we relate to and experience money in society? What's our financial place and identity in society? What does that mean for us? Yes. There's so much to that. There's politics to that. There's uh, values to that. There's so many pieces to that. Yeah. Wow. Well, I wanted to shift to trauma and money in some of the time that we have left, but because, you know, who knew you're going to be quoting Bessel van der Kolk in the book about money. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. And, you know, I think the, 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 one of the bottom lines that you talk about is that many are using money to manage emotional and relational issues. And I thought I've been thinking about that a lot and that. I mean, I think on the surface, we'd like, oh, yeah, 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 I, I agree with that. But it, it can go very deep. And I, I was even thinking about how we use this term retail therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's said in kind of a as a joke, but <laughs> it's a real issue for a lot of people. Yes. And we know Mac at the macro level, we're a very lonely society. Yes. 
in, right? That has, that's the function of the attachment system not being met. And our mobile devices are only exacerbating the speed at which we disconnect. So, and we're being marketed to all the time. That's our consumer scientists. Right. We're getting messages to buy all the time. And we're, those messages are emotionally associated with positive things. Right. So of course we would think that if we buy more, we do get, and the neuroscience, the consumer neuroscience says, yeah, we get all those positive neurochemical dumps like we do in positive relationships. The quality and depth is just not as much. Right. And our objects are not interactive with us, which is really a critical part of mental health. Yeah. Like having this conversation with you and you interacting with me has been very rich and rewarding. And I can only imagine what my brain has gotten from it. But me buying another book on Amazon gives me a small little high, but even when the book comes, it's not going to say, Ed, this has been a lot of fun having you read me. Yes. Right. But the way you've interacted with me, is like, oh, I think Karen's having a good time with me. That's added richness to my life and meaning. So mm-hmm. when we look at the intimate partnership, especially, and how quickly they can break down and how lonely people can get, they can't, we can't tolerate that isolation. And so what are the levers that we have to pull? And shopping becomes one of them. Hyper-compulsive activity, over-engagement and too many commitments to different activities, recreational commitments, sports for the kids, all these mm-hmm. things, right? mm-hmm. And so yeah. it, it creates a really strong feedback loop. And I'm not anti-consumer society by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not saying we all need to go live in yurts and stop spending money. We just have to recognize and be able to differentiate. When are we spending money to solve unmet emotional needs? Yes. And when are we spending money to meet healthy emotional needs of connecting and bonding? I.e., we just saved up thousands of dollars to go on an anniversary trip, my wife and I, right? Right. That's a good use of money, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned it and foreshadowed it, and I'll go ahead and name it. In the book, I talk about my experience with financial infidelity. And as I was starting my practice, I, you know, self-proclaimed anxious attachment style. And mm-hmm. you see the trauma, right? The trauma in my history preceded that, preceded and added to the anxious attachment bonding process. Yes. So that's when we really understand trauma as the mechanism that disrupts our attachment and affect regulation system and missing the ability to get the mirroring that we need. And we go out to society and put it on the consumption process. Yes. Yes. Or we, this is where a lot of times I'll see compulsive investing or gambling gambling as seen as investing because it's like oh if i can just get to this land of financial security then i'll be safe yeah there's a lot of really miserable rich people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's because i haven't done the psychological work of working through psychological security right well i i love when you say here related to compulsive work you mentioned in the book external success can't replace internal security so it's a number of things that we pursue to try to feel safe instead of getting to the root of of feeling safe and connected in a relationship and i was um you know one of this idea using money to manage emotions and relational issues so 
uh, one of the ways that I have dealt with using, I, I've used food. I have a history of using food to cope with this. And I would find whenever I stopped using food, suddenly I met TJ Maxx all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was like, yes. Oh, yes. wait a minute. Like, because I don't need food mm. when I'm spending money on a pair of shoes. Like I don't, because right. they're both covering up different things. It's just yeah. really a fascinating thing in how, what you're trying to get us to see in this book, you know, we have to deal with these underlying issues and um, and have compassion for one another. Right. Because I think with money, we can get re- more than other things. I think we can get very harsh and mean and judgmental about it. Absolutely. And, you know, I, th- I think this comes from IFS, but it's that internalized parent voice. Yes. How do most of us grow up hearing our parents talk about money? Mm, yes, that was another great part of the book um, where you talk about your kind of your family system and how they viewed money. Right. And you've got this young developing person and mind brain that's absorbing and internalizing all these money messages from the family that are directly there and indirectly there. And so children are highly perceptive to what's going on in their environment, despite what parents think. Right. Oh, little Johnny will never remember this, that we went bankrupt when he was five years old. Or that after we go shopping, um, mom goes in through the back door and hides the package. Oh my God, yes. Uh, yes. Oh, Not to just lay that on females, you know, we know some oh. males would make a purchase that couldn't fit through the back door, maybe if we're going to stereotype, you know, okay. All right, we'll pick on the guys and say they leave it in the back of the pickup truck. They're just going to play out stereotype, right? We put it in that, what's that locker on the back of the pickup truck that you can put up? They just right. put it in there, leave it in there. Right. You know, they rub some dirt on the boots and say, no, these aren't new boots, honey. These are my old work boots. But, you know, and we're laughing, but they are forms of deception. They are forms of deception. And there's a lot of research, uh, some anecdotal, some more empirical, that somewhere between 50 and 70% of couples don't have full financial transparency with each other. There's a lot of this kind of sometimes push to try to manage that anxiety by doing a yours, mine, and ours approach to money. But the reality is what one person does with money impacts the other. Mm. And I think it represents relational anxiety and really not having a framework for knowing how to connect and be securely with each other around everything that you do. So if you're passing judgment on the way your partner spends money, they're going to shut down and not want to tell you about that. Mm-hmm. Right? Gottman talks about the four horsemen. Mm-hmm. Think about each of those four horsemen and the way that you say things about money to your partner. Right. Right. Yeah. It's no wonder that we can't talk about money together as partners. I mean, there's just so many landmines that we're stepping in and on that we don't even fully recognize we're setting the trap for, right? My wife... Mm-hmm. I love her, but you know, she has a hard time sometimes um, being open to my dreams and hopes. Mm-hmm. And because of my anxious attachment orientation, I can really shut, shut down and deflate. Now, she's not even doing that mean or malicious. It's just part of her orientation. She's right. more conservative that way. So 
I have a solution that I, I discovered in my relationship. What you do is you preemptively say, act really excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Right. I need you to be really excited about this. Because if you don't act really excited about this, it's really going to upset me. So, right. you know, that, 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 that's one of my solutions in my relationship. So there's two more things I want to talk about as we wind down. And one is this term, financial empathy, which I thought was an interesting term. But then I also want you to be able to kind of give a commercial of, of what people can access on your website, your book. You have another book coming out. Yes, I have another book and a course coming yeah. of course, um, before. So well, let's hit financial empathy. Yes, uh, I think that that was a new term for me. And I would think if it was for me, it might be for someone else. Well, it was for me too. And I remember I was, you know, this, I'm this up and coming. I'm still seven years into this. So I don't know, whatever. A handful of years ago, I'm at this conference and I hear this guy speaking and he says, and the, the speech is financial empathy. I'm like, I'm the I'm this financial therapy guy. I should, I should have already thought of why didn't I think? And he gives a beautiful story of financial empathy. And I'm like, wow, this is great. So what is financial empathy? It it's empathy towards people's financial life, right? We already know what empathy is, right? But that's our bread and butter business is to be empathic individuals. Right. But what's really challenging is when we hit that topic of money, we can slip into our own judgments, values, and evaluations of what is right or wrong around money. Right. And some therapists will even slip into advice giving mode, which is really missing the point. So we're wanting to use those skills of an intuition and sensing and perceiving to see what's not being said right now about the finances where do they need support and acknowledgement? Where do they need mirroring around what's happening around the finances? How can we start to imagine how their financial past might be shaping their present for them, right? So it's all these different elements and being able to probe and explore. A great example of this is I had a husband who was very financially anxious and he was always thinking about the budget, always on his wife, you're spending too much, you're spending too much, you know, shut down withdrawal stop spending they come to me he's in tears he's devastated he's like our life is ruined we're in our 50s how are we ever going to get out of this they're both professionals and he's wanting me to get her on the page and the budgeting page and the bandwagon says, mm -hmm. well okay you know maybe that's where we need to go but let's let's first start with a little story and understand and this woman starts to tell her story of her mother passing and her uncle taking over the finances and doing it for her and not telling her what's going on. Mm. And then a large part of her value system was supporting her community. And so she would spend money on the, on community members to her own detriment. Mm. And that that was something that she needed to really have space to work with and explore what is this ratio of relationship of now I'm a successful professional. I've left my community. How do I manage my wealth in relationship? And so over quite a number of sessions of being able to explore and open empathically how dynamic this spending pattern is. Now all of a sudden the husband sees his wife through a very different lens. Mm -hmm. He's able to meet her with more compassion. He's, and the other side is the wife being able to hear his story of his father, not having the money to even have a car to take him to college and mm -hmm. some of the other financial constraints that preceded that. And so yes. of course he has financial anxiety and his response is to become overbearing about it. Mm -hmm. 
right? So that's when we, we can start to be open to financial adversity in early life carries forward, even when people have the external markers of financial security and success. Mm-hmm. The education and the job don't just mean that we all of a sudden now feel at peace around money. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it actually exacerbates our anxiety around our finances mm-hmm. because we have a very simple money story in our head that if we have more money, we should have fewer problems. Right. So then once we have more money and we don't have fewer problems, we're stuck. What do we right. do? It's so that's where. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's sort of like one's internal working model around money specifically. The financial schema. Yes. Yeah. And there, there's growing literature on being able to look at that and map that. And that's what the work of the financial therapy association yes. does. Yes. So tell us where people can find you, what uh, you have available, of course, your book, which I recommend to everybody get. It's a very good read, both about finances, but also about attachment and your own story. And it's a it's a really um, very readable, accessible, but yet at the same time, interesting and new ideas book. So would um, encourage people to pick that up for starters. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think, you know, the easiest way is um, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and recently TikTok. So if TikTok's your thing, I'm not too yeah. well crazy on TikTok, but I'm doing some short videos there. Yes. But also, my website is the easiest place is healthyloveandmoney.com. I, I do have a course I was um, coming up. It's a, it's a really comprehensive course. It's going to take couples through understanding their attachment style, affect regulation, trauma, family systems, and then how all those pieces really apply to their financial system and mm-hmm. all those pieces and how, how you can use that knowledge of psychology in your own life with your intimate partner to feel mm-hmm. more connected, to feel more bonded. And it, uh, the course is called The Couple's Guide to Financial Intimacy. And more information is on the website about that. And that will be launching in January. That's great. And do you do... Cons- there might be some therapists that are wondering if you do consulting with therapists. Like I feel maybe some of my own history is getting in the way of me building my business or, uh, I don't know if that would be considered therapy or consulting. And, you know, do you do any work like that? I do. I do have that part of my coaching consulting therapy practice. It's all kind of interwoven together. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, you can reach out to me through healthyloveandmoney.com. All right, great. Well, thank you so much yeah. for being here today and talking with us about your work on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate it. It's been a delight. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 